What's going on? Welcome to Base Liberty, episode 27. Today is Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. Darren Wisely here, so happy to be with you as always, but today especially happy because this is an episode I'm super pumped about. And I'll get into all that here in just a second. But real quick, I just wanted to say thanks again for the support. We're really growing the show here. Subscribe to this page wherever you listen to your podcast. If you haven't yet, leave us a review. And you can see everything we're doing at ChooseWisely, W-I-S-E-L-E-Y.org. You can even throw a few pennies my way if you want to help us keep the lights on. And if you think you know, uh, say, a friend, family member, coworker who could learn something from this, share it with them. Even if it's just for entertainment value, because the only way we're going to get the truth out there is by spreading this information. And we're blessed to live in a time where, for very low cost, you can disseminate ideas around the world. Uh, it's just going to take some elbow grease, some work ethic. But, you know, these things, the real history, the how we can preserve liberty, constitutionalism, the, the things we're talking about on this show... The mainstream media is not going to talk about, the public schools aren't teaching, so things like this and things like sharing are a free way we can get this word out there. So just want to say thanks again for the support, and of course thanks as well to Rod Jones, who is in charge of editing the audio. So today we're going to switch gears from current politics to history, and this is an episode I've planned on doing and wanted to do since the inception of this podcast. It's about Claude Frederick Bastiat. And gun to my head, he is the single most influential figure in terms of influencing my personal political philosophy. This episode was really inspired because I was talking to a friend on the phone and we were kind of talking about my political journey. And if you guys want, I I don't really like to make shows about me because I think that's boring. But if you guys want an episode on my political journey, it is somewhat interesting so I could do that. So that's what got, got me thinking to do, get this episode out here. Bastiat's work really had a huge influence on me. And there was something online where I had, had talked about that. And my friend John, who I didn't know at the time, looked me up, saw that about me, messaged me on Twitter. We became buddies because he shares my affinity for Bastiat. And John's a great guy as well, fighting for the cause of liberty. So Bastiat is a 19th century French writer, economist, and political theorist. He's one of the most prominent and influential classical liberals and just thinkers in general of the 19th century. And you might say, okay, that's great. Well, why do a whole episode about him? Well, first off, it's my show, so I'll do an episode on whatever I want. <laughs> but no, I mean, his work is really relevant today. Uh, that is why what is so great about Bastiat is he breaks down these big concepts so well and explains it so concisely and clearly. So if, if you're wanting to understand some of this stuff, it's not just a bunch of you know theoretical, esoteric things that have no practical application. I mean, he uses parables in some cases to give a real-life practical explanation. And if only we had leaders willing to read and learn from him, our, we could have so much better of a society. But, of course, people don't read him. I mean, probably some people listening to this episode have only have a real cursory understanding of him. Maybe they've heard the name. Maybe you haven't heard of him at all. And that's not surprising because he's really not taught in schools. 
which is so disappointing because he was a pioneer in any senses, but he also was so great at just spreading these core fundamentals of liberty. Why don't they teach him? Well, the ideas he's going to spread and his principles are very contrary to what the schools are teaching, to what any in the mainstream want us to believe. So, And you'll see once we get into some of this work what I mean. So who is he? He's born in 1801, died in 1850. He lived a short life. And he was orphaned as a child, taken in by his grandfather. He was very intellectually curious and influenced by the classical economists. He's influenced by Adam Smith, Jean-Baptiste Say, among others. He got into politics. Uh, he was elected Justice of the Peace in 1831. He was elected to basically a county-level assembly position in 1832. And he's elected to the National Legislative Assembly after the French Revolution of 1848. Of course, very near the end of his life there. So the school of thought he belongs to, as I said earlier, is classical liberalism. Of course, they didn't call themselves classical liberals. They just called themselves liberals at the time. But we use that distinction now to not be confused with modern liberalism or socialism or progressivism which basically has nothing, almost nothing in common with classical liberalism. And I've actually written about this about a year ago now. If you go to choosewisely.org, you can see an article where I discuss that. If that interests you, you want more detail about it. Um, but I'd actually at some point like to do an episode talking about the evolution of political thought, classical liberalism, conservatism, progressivism, because out of classical liberalism, you get a fit in the 20th century, uh, notably conservatism and libertarianism. So what is liberalism in this traditional sense? It's a political and moral philosophy based on liberty, consent of the governed, and equality before the law. Now, I didn't just make up this definition. This is from Wikipedia. It's an accepted definition. So I think it's that's, that's fair game. Some of these ideas are nearly timeless, but liberalism really took hold through the Enlightenment, and John Locke is known as the father of liberalism. Adam Smith contributed a lot of thought. You see a lot of influence in the American founding from liberalism. Not that they were all classical liberals, because they definitely were not, um, but Thomas Jefferson, of course, fits that mold very well. James Madison, Montesquieu would fit that mold, especially talking about separation of powers and government. And in the 19th century, some examples would be John Stuart Mill, uh, de Tocqueville. They're talking about tyranny of the majority when it comes to democracy. And all in all, classical liberals believe in a minimal state to protect natural rights they place a very high emphasis on religious freedom because coming into that time, of course, you would have one religious faction get in power, persecute all the others. The Protestants are in power, going to persecute the Catholics, but then the Catholics take power, the Protestants, or, or whatever. That's just an example. But they saw religious freedom as being really important. We obviously saw those ideas take hold um, in the United States. Free markets are very important to liberals, private property rights, and they see the government as 
just being there to protect these property rights. You have police, so someone from your community doesn't come infringe on your private property rights, and then military, so a foreigner uh, doesn't come and infringe on your property rights. Now, there's quite some variation among what a liberal would believe in terms of the what areas the government is or is not engaged in. I mean, you're going to have some say no government at all, and then you're going to have some say government can actually do a lot of things. Um, I mean, even Thomas Jefferson said that we could have public education. Now, he also said that would require a constitutional amendment outside the scope of this episode, but the point is um, the scope of government involvement is going to vary, and education would be one area that would be highly contested. It's interesting, though, that you're going to say the government sucks at everything, but you want it to do the most important thing. So I want this episode to focus on just a couple of his key ideas, not get bogged down in a bunch of dense theory. That's not what this episode is, but it's going to just be short, concise points and things that we can understand in 2020 and implement today, or at least try to encourage our politicians to do so if we want more liberty, if we want more freedom, if we want more prosperity. So the first one I'm going to talk about is from Economic Sophisms, and specifically the Candlemaker's Petition. So the Candlemaker's Petition is a satirical parable, Bastiat wrote. So the Candlemaker's profits are down, and they look in the sky and they see, Dag Nabbit, that sun is providing free light to everyone in our community. So they say, Hmm, you know what? We're going to petition the government to take protective action against unfair competition from the sun. They tell the government, look, we're suffering from unfair competition of a foreign rival. That sun is providing light for free, and now we can't get any profits because no one will buy our candles. So they petition the government to force everyone to close all their windows during the day so the sun can't enter. Now people don't have another light source, thus the candlemaker's profits go up. See, everyone is just better off without the sun, right? Well, obviously you can see how absurd this is, but this is actually a very relevant point. And he's using this parable to talk about tariffs. So you're for with tariffs, you're forcing people to pay when a free alternative is available. It's a waste of resources. It might help the candle makers in this sense, but it lowers disposable income for everyone else by needlessly raising everyone's cost. So tariffs are a great example of this. You can see here how when politicians do things like tariffs, when they engage in protectionism, they're thinking, look, we're protecting this industry, but what is it at the expense of? And that's something, a very basic principle put into practice we can understand here in 2020, but almost none of our politicians get because they're very economically ignorant. And I'm sure on Facebook, your friend groups, people have the same mentality. But you can explain this, you know, in five minutes like I just did. And, and if they're open-minded, maybe change their mind. So, parable of the Candlemaker's Petition. So, another one, this one really got the ball rolling for me in my in my political journey, 
in understanding economics. And this is in That Which is Seen and That Which is Unseen. This is the parable of the broken window. So you have a shopkeeper. A boy throws a rock, accidentally breaks his window. So the shopkeeper has to pay someone six bucks to fix it. And all the people standing by say, look, this is good for the economy because now the shopkeeper has to pay a repairman six bucks. The money exchanges hands. Now the repairman is six dollars richer. But here's what they're missing. They're only looking at what is seen. They're not looking at what is unseen. So what's unseen? This accident caused the shopkeeper to spend his six bucks on that window instead of on something useful to him. He already had that window. Now he spends it on that. If he didn't have to spend his six dollars there, he could have spent it on maybe a new book for his library, maybe something to expand his business, maybe his roof was leaking. I mean, the possibilities are endless what he would have spent that money on, but we know it wouldn't have been on a window because he already had one. So that's the unseen part of it. And Bastiat goes on, suppose the boy had, had been paid by the repairman to break that window so the repairman would get paid. Everyone would consider that theft. And rightfully so. But society advocates this thinking as if it stimulates the economy. So this really, really made an impact on me the first time I heard it. And Henry Hazlitt explains this in Economics in One Lesson. If you want to understand economics and you haven't read Economics in One Lesson, you're doing yourself a disservice. It's not a large book. It's not dense. But these are the basic things. And again, if our politicians would just read this stuff, I mean, we'd be in such a different boat. But that got me to think in a different way than I'd thought before, which is just, as most people do, just thinking about what I look at. But now I'm looking at the unintended consequences. Now I'm thinking about all the different effects of a course of action. People need to think about this stuff. It is such a low-hanging fruit to say, look, we're going to spend money on this to get this, but not look at what that is in lieu of. And there's just countless things, you know, the government here in the United States does. I mean, look, stimulus packages. That's a great example. Oh, they're stimulating the economy. Really? So taking money and redistributing it is stimulating the money? I mean, it's a shell game. It's And that's not even bringing in the cost to implement the programs. But that aside, you're taking money, spending it for other things. But what if the people just kept their money in the first place and spent it on things they actually needed and wanted? Make work programs, another great example. A lot of people say, we need a jobs program. Really? We need the government to make jobs? I mean, that's what you get in like the FDR administration. Well, we're going to pay people to dig a ditch and fill it back in. That's helping the economy? That's a service people want? People want holes dug and filled in? I mean, unless it's for entertainment or something, that isn't doing something. But you let the market dictate... Then people are getting paid to do work for things people want. Maybe it's farming. People need the food. Maybe it's work in factories so they have clothes. I mean, it could be anything. But the market is going to allocate these resources efficiently. And that's the problem. These bureaucrats in government uh, don't see the unseen at all. 
Another great example, I remember I was in high school at this time, but the cash for clunkers. I worked actually, I filed papers at a car dealership and just seeing these crappy old cars. I mean, they weren't all crappy, actually. There were, there were some pretty nice ones, too. You know, getting in and, uh, oh, man, you know, we're stimulating the economy. Really? I mean, to me, it looks like you're just destroying tons of pretty decent cars. And again, if that money just stayed in the rightful owner's pockets, you know, the the taxpayers, they would have allocated that money. They would have used those resources in a way that actually benefited them rather than having that money taken, given to someone in exchange for a car that all else being equal, they would have just kept that car, right? I mean, if they weren't going to get $5,000 for this you know, $2,000 car that there's really nothing wrong with that gets them to work every day, but it's just older, not that nice, they would have kept the car. So the cash for clunkers to someone who doesn't know economics, oh yeah, we're stimulating the economy, but no, actually we're just filling up junkyards and hurting the economy. So anytime you hear about the government stimulating the economy, making jobs, it's all hogwash. The only thing the government can do to help the economy is get the heck out of the way. So the last work I wanted to touch on with Bastiat, I want to say the best for last here, the law. And if if you know Bastiat at all, this is his most popular work. Um, I've got an edition of it behind me. I'm not sure if the camera can see it. I bought this cool one. Oh, I'm wearing a shirt too. If you're watching the video, I'm wearing my Bastiat shirt from that I got from the Mises Institute. Become a member there if you haven't. I'm a member there. It's not really that expensive. Uh, but these guys, if you're going to donate money somewhere, probably the best organization, p political organization you could get involved with. Tenth Amendment Center is another good one. And, of course, Young Americans for Liberty. I had just a regular book version. I gave it to someone, never got it back. So I bought this cool one. Oh, it's right over here. Um... You know, it's bigger, it's got the picture, you know, kind of for show, whatever. So the law, let's talk about it. And I'm going to say this, the law is only like 50-some pages. If you haven't read this book, it'll change your life. I'm telling you, read it. 50-some pages, you can borrow my copy. You can have my copy if that's what it takes. But you can get one cheap, I'm sure. Oh, you can get one for like five bucks used. When I really got into this. I kind of had a cursory overview of it younger in life, but when I came back to it, it just like it just clicked. I'm telling you, it'll change your life. But he's saying everyone has a right to protect his person, liberty and property. The state should only be a substitution of a common force for individual forces to defend this right. Astiat talks about how the law becomes perverted. So he one of the things that really struck a chord with me was this notion of legalized plunder. So, if I come into your house at night and I steal from you, that's that's illegal plunder. I get thrown in jail for it, and rightfully so, right? Stealing's wrong. But if the government does it, if they take money out of your check, for some reason that's viewed as morally acceptable. And that's what Bastiat calls legal plunder, and he's defining it as, if the law takes from some persons what belongs to them and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong, see if the law benefits one citizen at the expense of another by doing what the citizen himself cannot do without committing a crime, in which he includes 
the tax support of protective tariffs, subsidies, guaranteed profits, guaranteed jobs, relief and welfare schemes, public education, progressive taxation, free credit, and public works. Eagle plunder is what the government can, under their own laws, get away with an ordinary citizen could not. And you can apply that to anything the government does. And like I said, that's just that just really got the gears spinning with me. And um, I'm sure it will for you if you haven't heard that before. But he makes so many good points in the law. It, it's really just about how the government can't engage in philanthropy, philanthropy such as social welfare programs or any, any other type of these projects because it's always at the expense of someone else. So it, it's not moral. You can call it philanthropy. You can call it whatever you want, but you're taking it from someone else to do it. So it, it just can't be moral. So this is all about kind of the distinction between the government does these things. If a regular private citizen did it, it would it would be outlawed, but people give the government a free pass to do so. I like this point he makes in the law. If the natural tendencies of mankind are so bad that it is not safe to permit people to be free, how is it that the tendencies of these organizers are always good? Do not the legislators and their appointed agents also belong to the human race? Or do they believe that they themselves are made of a finer clay than the rest of mankind? So he's really witty, too. I mean, that's another cool thing about Bastiat. And you see the founding generation kind of talk about this, like Madison in the, in the Federalist and, and what have you, but when he talks about if men were angels, blah, 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 is that, okay, we have a government because people, humans are, infa- humans are fallible, but then why do we treat the government, the legislators, the people making the law as if they are not humans that are fallible as well? So again... Some more really good food for thought, just to let you chew on that. And the logical conclusion, of course, is that he's going to be extremely critical of socialism, which was really starting to take a rise during this time period, this middle 19th century. I like this part. We disapprove of state education. Then the socialists say that we are opposed to any education. We object to a state religion. Then the socialists say that we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality. Then they say we are against equality and so on and on. Is that not so relevant today? I don't want the government to run health care. Oh, I must not want people to have health care. I mean, again, it's just such a stupid argument. But they, this is how these socialists demagogue the issue. If you don't want the government to do it, you must not want it at all. No. Try nuance. I want the market to provide it. He says, I do not dispute their right to invent social combinations, to advertise them, to advocate them, and to try them upon themselves at their own expense and risk. But I do dispute their right to impose these plans upon us by law, by force, and to compel us to pay them with our taxes. That's an awesome line, and that shows the principle of Bastiat. Because he's supporting their freedom of speech, their right to advocate these principles. Right? He's not just saying, hey, hey, commies, we're just going to slaughter all of you because you're the scum of the earth. He's saying, hey, you can have these ideas, but you do not have the right to impose them on, on me and on people who don't want them. That's the crux of it.
I really like this quote in the state. It's one of his most famous quotes, which is, The state is the great fictitious entity by which everyone seeks to live at the expense of everyone else. And what he's saying there is what he's talked about in the parables. Before, you have all these different groups competing for their piece of the pie. Just like in the Candlemaker's Petition, the farmers are going to say, we need farm subsidies because our our um, profits are down. But then the bankers are going to say, no, 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 we need subsidies because our bankers are down, or because our profits are down. And then same with uh, factories and the industrial sector and so on and so on and on. And the government is just all these different groups vying for their cut of the pie. And today, I mean, that's just exponential, all the lobbying going on, state and federal level. People in local level, too, fighting for this stuff. Um, that's the problem you get into when you're not looking at what's unseen. Okay, we give, you know, we give this farmer 100 grand in subsidies a year, but what could that money have been used for? You know, maybe someone was going to invent, you know, some great, the cure for COVID. No, we won't even get into that. But they were going to invent something awesome. But no, that money was taken from them to uh, give to, you know, the corn growers or give to public education, whatever. It's it's a fiction. Everyone lives at the expense of everyone else. Wise words from a wise man. So Bastiat was inspired with Richard Cobden, you might know from the Anti-Corn Law League's so they're a free trade association in England, and he worked as well with free trade associations in France. So again, he's very much an advocate of free trade, not this system of everyone vying for their corporate welfare, as we'd call it today, their piece of the pie there. But really the disappointing things is that really Bastiat didn't start this work until 1844, and we know he died six years later. So in this little segment of his life, he has so much to offer us. I mean, it's just crazy to think what he could have accomplished had he lived, you know, another decade or two or three, because he did all this in, in such a small amount of time. Such an intelligent individual. This guy from South France, he goes to Paris to promote his ideas. He's wearing this funny hat. You know, it's, it's kind of like someone from Texas going to Washington, D.C., right? He's a southerner. And they say, hey, you know, we can get you different change of clothes, different hat. And he says, no, you know what, I like this. So he has that kind of folksy element to him. And, uh, you know, I really, I think that's kind of neat. Uh, you know, he has this funny accent to the people in Paris. So he keeps his ways. He doesn't change for them. And he's there to persuade the working class against socialism because, as I said, it's really taking root in this time. And David Hart, who's done a lot of work, he points out that in the summer of 1849, Bastiat was writing economic harmonies in a secluded hunting lodge. He wrote that which is seen and that which is unseen three times, actually. So the first time he wrote it, he lost it in a move, and he wrote it a second time from memory. But he didn't like the result. He threw it in the fire, wrote it a third time. Just an incredibly gifted, intelligent individual. And he dies of tuberculosis. That's what it's known as. A couple years of his life are really painful. But he does so much great work amid that. So there's some speculation maybe because he knew he was dying, he tried to just get as much, kind of a brain dump and get everything 
out there at this time, but but David Hart says he actually thinks Bastiat died of throat cancer because of the way he talked about the pain in his mouth and uh, that sort of thing. So it could be that he died of throat cancer. So his contributions are immense. I mean, this episode can only do some justice, but I hope from those two parables, the broken windows and that which is seen, that which is unseen, there's a couple good takeaways there. As well as in the law, which again is just going to blow your mind if you haven't read that yet. But his contributions on top of that, again, he gives a great, just concise, practical defense of free markets and the proper role of government. One other real interesting thing is he's talking about opportunity cost in the broken window parable 60 years or more before that's torn because that coin wasn't really termed until 1914. So he's talking about opportunity cost way before that's a thing, if you will. He also looks at things from perspective of subjective value. So he's very much an early Austrian and he would influence later Austrian economists. He talks about the knowledge problem in central planning, uh, which of course is very important as a counter argument to socialism. I mean, how is it that one central planner in a huge country can determine how many shoes need to be made, how many, how much food, what, you know, all those sorts of things? A central planner never can because of this knowledge problem. And Bastiat clearly understood this and uh, discussed it. He also has a, a work similar to iPencil, which I did an episode talking about how I compared iPencil to the COVID shutdowns, but iPencil is the Leonard Reed essay in the 50s, and uh, Bastiat has something kind of similar to that, again, 100 years before iPencil's written. So he's very much, he's much more known as someone who was a journalist, a pamphleteer, someone who spread ideas, but he actually has a lot of original ideas as well in his own right that I think he's not given us enough credit to. So there's there's your episode on Bastiat. And again, I mean, if our politicians just understood some of these basic principles, we'd ha- we'd be so much better off. And and I realize most of them are you know evil that enough where if they knew this stuff, they wouldn't change anything anyways because they're just they're doing it for themselves. But the few you know, maybe it's 10% or whatever that, that actually do want to, that actually do care, you know, a lot of their good intentions are misguided. And if they just understood this basic economics, understanding opportunity cost, understanding how protectionism doesn't work, subsidies don't work, understanding the proper role of government, we could have so much liberty, so much more prosperity. So all I can say is, you know, spread this stuff to your friends. Let them know the truth. Again, they're not going to learn it in schools. They're not going to learn it from the mainstream media. But we get this stuff out there. That's how things can be changed. And encourage your representatives, you know, especially local and state level, to uh, abide by these principles because there's so much to learn from. So I hope you really enjoyed that episode. Uh, I had a good time on here. And uh, as always, you can send me a request. Uh, shoot me an email, baselibertyhost at gmail.com. If you want to hear more, hey, everybody take care. We'll talk to you soon.